0: Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and this is the Empire and the Deep State series that I'm co-hosting with the American Exception podcast and my good friends, Aaron Good and Seamus McGuinness. And this is part seven of the Empire and Deep State series that we're doing. We've covered a lot of ground, although you don't necessarily need to have listened to the past parts to listen to this part. Today, we're gonna be talking about academia u.s academia western academia and the state so not only the theorization of the state but also their relationship to the state to u.s intelligence agencies to the national security state and we're going to begin this episode talking about different theories of the state and aaron we're talking about your book american exception empire in the deep state you're the author you're a political scientist a historian You are very familiar with different academic theories of the state. And you talk in the the beginning of this chapter on academia and the state about the concept of the dual state, right? What is the dual state? Explain. And, of course, this is also related to the concept we talked about of the tripartite state.
1: Right. Well, the idea of the state in general is... It's something that has to be addressed in political science because this is the organization. The classic definition from Max Weber is the state is that organization which in a given territory maintains a monopoly on the legitimate use of force or violence. And this is problematic when the state is understood to be this democratic element where the public is really in control of things, uh, ostensibly, but then you have political forms that emerge that are not like that, that are were not democratic and the public is not control and in control, and that the use of violence is maybe further, more than what is generally understood, or it's, uh, it goes beyond what is the rule of law and so on. And you have a, a different kind of state that emerges. And this was first remarked upon by a guy named Ernst Frankel, who immigrated to the United States in 1941 from Germany. And he was talking about the German state that had emerged in 1940 by 1941. If you know your history, that is the Nazi state. And he wrote a book, the dual state, a contribution to the study of dictatorship. And he wrote that the state that had existed before was something that he called the normative state, which was more or less governed constitutionally and run constitutionally you know, in the way that we understand like a, a democratic state as functioning. Now he wrote that there is this prerogative state that emerged and the prerogative state sort of is like what it sounds. It's like this state where that has the prerogative to act decisively and that its job was to protect the normative state. Okay. So the Nazi version of the state where the Fuhrer is empowered to like take the necessary steps to protect the state, that, that is a, uh, is, is a, dualistic kind of a, of a structure where it's like the older institutions st- still exist, but they're protected by this kind of, you know, dark side, violent state. Now, in, in the US, you had Hans Morgenthau, who was a realist and he immigrated to the United States and then worked with the State Department at, at some points, but was mostly an international relations scholar, I think at the University of Chicago. And he wrote about this as well, And he wrote that wherever there was in 19, uh, I think it was in the 1950s, he writes this and he's talking about what had happened in the State Department and how McCarthyism had gotten rid of, you know, competent uh, diplomats and replaced them with political hacks in different ways. And that basically this dual, it was a dual state that was emerging, like had emerged in every kind of dictatorship and it securitizes politics and then it gives the secret police a veto power over politics. Okay, so this is another idea of the dual state, taking this German model, this really this Nazi model and saying, hey, if you empower the national security state, this is the road you're going down. So be careful. Now, fast forward to 2009. You have Ola Tanander, who's a Swedish academic, and he starts to write about this. Uh, 2009, then he did some earlier work on it. But there's a 2009 essay in this anthology by Eric Wilson. Uh, the anthology is called Government of the Shadows. And, uh, It's like and the other and his essay in it is dealing with the Democrat, the dual state and the democratic state. And he says the democratic state is like open and lawful run by democratic logics. And the security state is secretive, hierarchical and has overriding legal immunity. And that's the way that. So Olatanander is a is a radical scholar. And he's writing about starting to write about the security state, the dual state. And for him, he lumps the deep state in together with the dual state. Okay, my main innovation is to make it, call it a tripartite state where there's a security state that could potentially safeguard democracy or it could potentially serve oligarchy. And that's what it really ends up doing. The security state gets taken over by oligarchic forces and that's our tripartite state. But the dual state and this idea of a security state that acts like a a dictator more or less, This is put forward by Frankel, who was the Nazi theorist. Uh, Hans Morgenthau writes about this, comes to the U.S., points out how some things like that are happening. And Ola Tenander in the 21st century writes about it. And Peter Del Scott adapts it as well. And this is how we finally get some critics that are not in the mainstream talking about the transformation of the state into kind of a dictatorial thing with a democratic facade.
0: So Aaron how has the political science scholarship on the state and the dual state changed over time is there you know are there more t- contemporary attempts to try to revise this understanding of the state
1: There are but they're few and far between I did, was able to find one person who put forward a very good uh rendition of the dual state but taking out the kind of oligarchic elements of it so he's just really writing this is kind of what characterizes political science is that it it's almost it's written about as though it's apolitical meaning that you're going to talk about these organizations but you're gonna it's not appropriate uh to write about the sort of top-down economic elites influence on this so there's but this guy named michael glennon wrote a book called double national security and double government and it's essentially an argument for the dual state but a very narrow one he doesn't get he he talks about the lawlessness of it but he doesn't really get into that as a defining feature and he he omits a number of things like that but he he points out that this idea of a double government was was a kind of a mainstream thing in some ways in britain back in uh, the 1800s this guy named walter bagahat i'm not sure how you pronounce his name but he wrote about how there in the past in Britain you had these dignified institutions like the crown and the house of lords that people understood to be really running things but over time you got a second set of efficient institutions like the house of commons and the prime minister and the cabinet and that power to run the empire had gradually shifted over to these institutions and so he had what you called a disguised republic and that this was done to avert a legitimacy crisis basically that the British state was transformed in terms of where power really lay, but all the people's loyalty was with the crown and, and so on. And so it, it was these other things exist in a kind of ceremonial way, uh, but really the power is, is elsewhere. And so this was uh, the beginning of a, of a kind of double government critique. And this was in the pages of The Economist, which is, you know, the magazine that Karl Marx said was a magazine for British millionaires, right? So these people wanted to know and understand that was, that the way Glennon, the world works. Yeah. Okay, Lennon, very good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this was, and that was that was the British version of this. But this guy, this guy Glennon writes an update of this. And he's he's a guy, I think he's at Tufts University, maybe. And so there's a there's a little bit of scholarship in this realm that's in the mainstream that is a at least that's appreciated because it's a foothold for somebody like me who wanted to do some more radical work.
2: Right. So that's the theory of the British Empire and the rise of their dual state between the efficient and the dignified institutions. But how does that relate back to the United States, which historically tends to sort of look more anti-imperialist and was able to get away with an anti-colonial narrative because of, of our own history that maybe didn't look the same as some of the historical European powers did?
1: Right. Well, the U.S. has had a funny relationship to the idea of imperialism because they just they depict themselves as being anti-imperialist, which in a sense they were. They the U.S. became a nation state uh, through a an anti-colonial war, uh, but they were all obviously guilty of imperialism in a number of ways. I mean, the slaughter of the Indians and the westward expansion, expropriating all the land from American Indians, sea to shining sea, and then the slave trade was an example of imperialism, of course, the Monroe Doctrine, and all these other things, but by and large the U.S. was not exactly the same as the Europeans uh, who had extraterritorial colonies, and the U.S. for most of its, until the 20th century, or the very end of the the 1800s, uh, the U.S. did not have that extraterritorial empire, and so it could sort of claim to be anti-imperialist, you know, although we could pick that apart all day. Now, uh, so when the U.S. does become a global power with ext- with Internet, with a lot of international influence, that's in the 20th century. And so Glennon writes about how this double government phenomenon emerges as well in the U.S., pretty much like it did in Britain uh, as a result of uh, a major uh, of the country becoming The steward of a huge empire, right? And so you have the dignified institutions, you know, like the crown, uh, those that people had some nostalgia for, uh, those are called the Madisonian institutions for the US under Glennon's framework. And uh, these would be those institutions laid out in the Constitution, Congress, the judiciary, and the presidency. And the national security aspect of it, or the part that really runs things, the efficient part that runs the empire. He calls these Trumanite a Trumanite network because it was the 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 foundation for it was established with the National Security Act of 1947, and uh, it's a network because there's so many organizations involved in this that the uh, for the person looking at national security decisions it's very difficult to see where decisions actually get get made and who who makes them and this is of course very useful for people really running things because if nobody is responsible is if everybody is responsible really nobody is responsible so this is this is part of how you have this foreign policy that never changes because no matter what disaster you have nobody's really held accountable for it so even when nominally we know like for example president bush uh, was responsible for the iraq war and he said like I'm the decider right well it doesn't matter because there's a there's an immunity uh, for, uh, to any sort of consequences it seems for for these things unless there's an immunity until there's not as Trump, you know, found out getting impeached twice uh, or as uh, Nixon found out or John Kennedy found out. So, but, but the state itself is, even then it, it's, it operates in strange ways. If you're going to, if you're going to take on these forces, even as the president, it'll, the resistance manifests itself in strange ways, maybe assassination, maybe weird impeachment spectacles uh, you know, all these sort of things. So, as with other people in the past, Glennon says that the U.S. was kind of unintentionally doing this. OK, and this is probably a shortcoming of Glennon's work that this uh, that it was a fit. Of, he almost says it was a fit of absence of mind, but he doesn't quite go that far. Uh, he ignores the ways that the national security state emerged from elite machinations that they constructed it on purpose. But at least he's useful in saying, okay, the U.S. does have this kind of dualism of the state and that the democratic state does not have much control over foreign policy and U.S. imperialism. So this is this is a a step forward, at least in terms of acknowledging that aspect of it.
2: Right. And we'll come back to some of the your broader critique of Glennon's theory and where it falls short. But I think. The using the term Madisonian and Trumanite sort of betrays these two historical epochs and the idea that um in some way, Truman was sort of the rise of this this institutionalized power elite. But that's sort of implying in a way that then what was the were there efficient institutions in America before nineteen forty seven because some people could argue that. Um, even going back to Adam Smith, uh, he said that, you know, civil government, so far as it's instituted for the security of property, is in reality instituted for the defense of the rich against the poor. And Michael Parenti calls that the gangster state. Madison and Jefferson themselves were pretty openly anti-democracy because they understood that the American government was constituted to protect the rich. So... Is this more of a the Trumanite network? Is it an extension out of it? Is it a, a global network as opposed to maybe a domestic network for elite control? Or what sets apart uh, this Madison, Mad- Madisonian uh, institutions from the Trumanite network in terms of looking at things like the rise of the Council on Foreign Relations or the Fed and some things that actually came out of the British Empire right at the turn of the century Uh, as they sort of built this nexus of London and Wall Street financial power, that is sort of a cradle or a birthplace for this uh, that evolves into this institutionalized form. But what really sets it apart? And is there a dividing line there with Truman that uh, is is Glennon founded in laying down that dividing line?
1: Yeah, this gets into some of the historical aspects of it, but I think that they're worth looking at. It's not a complete 180 that the U.S. does when it enters into World War II. Uh, The history of the early part of the 20th century and the late 1800s are the U.S. empire expanding with the uh, Spanish-American War, uh, the annexation of Hawaii, uh, U.S. participation in the Boxer Rebellion and the Open Door, and that leads up to U.S. entry into World War I, which was really an imperialist war, and a war that the U.S. enters into for not so much not altruistic reasons, but really, you know, greed. I mean, I think you you have to say it. The uh, that they made enormous amounts of money on the war. It, it created a, a it helped corporate interests a whole lot. And in 1917, when the Russians are defeated, potentially looks like you're going to get either a German victory or a stalemate. And probably the only reason that the Allies prevail is because of uh, the U.S. be the most powerful country in the world in terms of industrial capacity and resources that they enter in on the side of the allies. And the U.S. had been neutral. The public didn't really want this war, but they enter because of, you know, massive mobilization, propaganda campaign. These same forces that would propel the U.S. to go for empire uh, during World War II, they make that decision. And so there was more, the forces that led to the creation of the Trumanite network were rising in power all throughout the latter part of the 1800s and the early part of the 1900s of the 20th century so this is something worth keeping in mind for understanding the sort of genealogy of the american empire that these in, these massive uh c- concentrations of capital of wealth especially morgan and rockefeller they were they looked overseas for resources and markets and they did have a relationship with the british elites like the round table uh, groups set up by uh, Milner and uh, Cecil Rhodes. They, The sister version of it in New York was the Council on Foreign Relations established with you know Wall Street and Rockefeller money. These are the people that planned the United States entry into World War II. And these are the people that put Truman in power anyway. I mean, Truman, it's funny that he would focus on Truman when Truman's main uh, attractive quality to the American oligarchy that basically parachuted him into the vice presidency to take over for FDR. His main quality was that he was just co-optable, that he was a guy who served people in power and that he didn't have any basis for being an independent statesman. He wasn't especially brilliant or well-versed in uh, understanding the so- elites in the American you know, social system. He was a guy that was just, uh, could be manipulated. And so he creates all of these networks. So there's a lot There's a lot of intentionality on the part of the elites, but it's carried out through a vessel like Truman. And so I I think that that's the way you want to look at the rise of the American version and how it does connect to uh, extant forces in American society that we're looking for uh, imperial expansion and lots of money to be made anywhere in the world.
0: Yeah, one of the more interesting parts of this chapter, Aaron, is you recount what was revealed by Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, in his memoir, The Doomsday Machine, which was recently published. I mean, I read this book and and it blew my mind. I mean, some of the information that he revealed in this. And you talk about one of the the most chilling revelations, which is the, the Joint Strategic Capabilities Plan, the JSCP. You can talk about what that is, but this essentially revealed that the U.S. military was operating essentially separately from the, the public state, from the political class, and had these plans for nuclear war on the Soviet Union and China and stated very clearly that, quote, the basic military objective of the U.S. armed forces is the defeat of the Sino-Soviet bloc, which is actually pretty ironic because we know about the Sino-Soviet split. The Soviet Union and China ended up falling out and having a lot of differences between them, largely, not entirely, but partially because of U.S. attempts to divide them. But anyway, the point is that Ellsberg revealed in his book that the U.S. military had made plans that if there was a war that broke out, by simply the way the technology was set up, it could not be changed, the policy could not be changed. The U.S. were to launch nuclear weapons, would launch nuclear weapons on both the Soviet Union and China destroying both. And we now know, as you mentioned in your book, that that would lead to nuclear winter and the potential death of humanity. But anyway, the point is, I kind of stole the thunder there a little bit, but I I just wanted to emphasize how extreme those revelations were in that book by Ellsberg, The Doomsday Machine. And and in my view, it got tragically little coverage. So anyway, talk about the role of Ellsberg in this and what this the uh, Joint Strategic Capabilities Plan says about the state, the dual state and military autonomy in the U.S.
1: Well, this is a good example in terms of illustrating the degree to which these unelected agencies in the government can uh, determine policy and not just in areas that are insignificant or where politicians don't have the time to really get in there in the weeds and deal with the specifics of it, this is a case of where there's no more important issue than, than this. This was a, it, it had within it, the potential to end life on humanity, uh, end all of humanity. I mean, more or less to end human civilization, anything more than a skirmish between us and Soviet forces would, lo- would lead to the launching of the general war plan. And the general war plan was to nuke all because with these uh, ballistic missiles anti-continent or uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. You the logic is use them or lose them. So if there's a war, you better use them because they're sitting targets. Otherwise, so you got to launch them all at once. Can't be just sitting there with them in your pocket. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta launch them. And this, so then they thought, well, they're out. The Soviets and the Chinese are allies, so we can't really just bomb all of the Soviet Union, which is staggering to think of by itself. We got to also take out China. And then the punchline to that is that that would also lead to nuclear winter and kill all of human civilization. They didn't know this at the time. But even just what was known about uh, with the plan that Ellsberg was looking at and the numbers that it would kill immediately, just as a matter of course, this was very alarming to him. And what makes this even more uh, disturbing is that there it was a policy in the Pentagon that if you were, the, 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 the initials themselves, J-S-C-P, was not to ever be used in any communication between the Pentagon and other departments of the government okay so no one could even know that this existed which would be one thing that's disturbing enough but it wasn't even the president wasn't supposed to know about it okay that should be very alarming even even crazier than that the Secretary of Defense was not to know about this so if they were writing about this they would have to edit in a, in a document that was going to the Secretary of, the, the, of Defense, the civilian in charge of the Pentagon, you know, right on, besides the president, that they would have to take, they would have to retype the document, because they didn't have word processors back then, they had to retype the document and remove reference to the JSCP, because otherwise, the Defense Secretary might ask, what is the J-C- JSCP, and they would say, oh, well, It's our it's our sort of automatic response to nuke all of Russia and China. And then they might say that they don't like that. And then they have to change the policy. And the Joint Chiefs apparently really like this policy because they they didn't want it to even come up for review. So Ellsberg sees this and is very alarmed and decides to go around uh, the heads of his supervisors risk getting fired because he thought this was so disturbing. Uh, And he eventually gets it to McGeorge Bundy. Who gets it to the to President Kennedy, and President Kennedy changes the policy, and he actually has um, Ellsberg draft the policy. So Ellsberg comes up with his new policy, uh, and he finishes it. I think on the like the day before his the the first draft of it, he finishes the day before his thirtieth birthday. Uh, so if you're feeling like uh, you haven't accomplished as much in your life, that might make you feel worse that that's what he was doing before he even turned thirty. And uh, it, this shows us a couple of things. One, it gives us a, some insight into Ellsberg and how he was a guy, a, a rare person in these circles, in that he didn't just blindly respect the chain of, of command, even if it was going to march humanity off a cliff, you know. And so you can understand more of what he did during the Pentagon Papers. Uh, but also, it shows us the power of these uh, institutions to act in a in a dictatorial sense in the in the worst. Uh, way of thinking about it because this is this could have ended all of humanity and this is a supposedly democratic state but there was no oversight uh from any elected officials on this except for the fact that one person was insubordinate and just got brought this information to the right people uh so this this could and america's only gone further to the right in many ways i do think that perhaps the generals are less crazy on the nuclear side of things although that could be erased with one mushroom cloud that would appear one day. You never really know what's going on at the very top. But regardless, by and large, the U.S. has mostly been more aggressively imperialistic and right wing since this time period. And so knowing that this is how it was back in, uh, you know, the early 1960s, that should really give us pause and make us think about these kinds of institutions.
2: Yeah, you know, especially for people who have seen dr strangelove uh stanley kubrick made this right in the middle of this he couldn't have known that any of this was happening but the the jack d ripper character is essentially that's a good way to remember how that policy worked because it's it's exactly that and you'll you'll never see a commie drink water but uh but yeah so it's crazy that that's happening at the same time because it's sort of a takeover of uh, what c Wright mills calls the the Military cast of mind or the military metaphysic. So, how has that grown since the Cold War? Uh, has has there been? Are you talk in the book about sort of the incentives toward overprotection. So, how have the Trumanite network been able to scale up in the history since since the '60s here?
1: Well, it's it's gotten worse by and large. I mean, uh, there's a 2011 series in Washington Post, and I think they made a book on it called Top Secret America uh, by Dana Priest and Arkin. I don't know the Arkin guy's first name. But but anyway, it was they they point out that there was there are 46 departments in the federal government working on classified national security matters with a budget of one trillion dollars a year. And that these are not even almost none of these people are political appointees, meaning that like people that are appointed by the the incoming administration. Okay. That's only 247 out of 668,000 employees are political uh, appointees. So this should be uh, alarming to us, I think. Um, And they have, They're they're a bit different from the people running things back in the early Cold War, you know, the best and the brightest that like Halberstam wrote about. Uh, These guys are less more like Ivy League pedigree from elite families. And they're more often today uh, made up of overachieving people who are really uh, upwardly mobile, expert summarizers. They believe in American exceptionalism, but they don't want to seem like naive. So they're rationalists about things. And above all, they want to seem tough, which was probably the case back then, too. So, yeah, this is it's a different group in some ways. But the overall dedication to like, you know, the hegemonic project is still there. And uh, there are incentives towards overprotection. You don't want to be responsible for any sort of failure. And Glennon, I think he plays this up sort of understandably. But at the same time, uh, there's also he says that you that there's you really don't want to be caught unprepared. But if we look at the times when the U.S. was unprepared, like 9-11, this there was no penal, penalty for bungling this, even though if you read like the Council on Foreign Relations official magazine, Philip Zelikow wrote an article uh, before 9-11, a couple of years before 9-11, saying like the, about the catastrophic the effects of catastrophic terrorism. Right. Where he more or less calls like describes what would happen. if if there were a big terrorist attack and so on, which is more or less what happens with 9-11. So people saw this stuff coming and even were were theorizing about what it would mean and they didn't really do anything about it. Uh, Instead, they just all get more uh, budget. You know, they get more money. The FBI is known for encouraging people to like stage plots, which they come in and and foil at the last minute so they get bigger budgets. Um, You had the first World Trade Center bombing where the guy recorded his FBI handler Uh, On the phone because he had some experience, and so it turned this informant that was working with the terrorists, and he even offered to the FBI saying, "Hey, I'll take the explosives out so that this bomb in the in the World Trade Center in 1993 doesn't kill anyone." The FBI said, "No, don't do that." Right? So, what what was that all about? the The bigger point is that like it's it's it may be even worse than what Glennon says because yeah, they do like are they are overly paranoid in terms of wanting budgets to combat all of these supposed threats. But when they do bungle things, that helps them too, because if there's any sort of attack on the US, then what's the response? It's it's never for less money. Uh, so I think we have to, you know, for these departments, we really have to take that into account too. So basically, it's kind of gotten worse. And it's a system that, uh, ne- that needs to have security threats to justify itself. And so, uh, you know, how is this going to impact the way that these that, that the. US relates to the rest of the world and to its adversaries. Uh, you know there's a lot of incentives to describe every adversary as 10 feet tall and posing a, a terrible threat to uh, all of America and mom and apple pie and everything else. So this is this is the, these are the dynamics at play and they it's only gotten worse uh, I think in the, since the Cold War.
0: And Aaron, there's always be, in, in the background when when we're learning this information when you're reading your book, there's always this, you know, historical context in the background that, that's pretty ironic of the so-called founding fathers talking about a system of checks and balances. Now, they largely wanted a system of checks and balances to hold checks and balances to prevent working people from having too much power and making sure that elite land-owning interests would remain in control of, of the government. But there's also just the fact, staring us in the face, that we can see clearly with these unaccountable, unelected you know institutions that this is not a democratic system and and what about the role of the in, the so-called independent judiciary which is part of this because in your book you you talk about supreme court justices like Scalia and Alito who have a long history of working with the US national security state working with intelligence agencies and you quote Alexander Hamilton who famously referred to the justice system as the least dangerous branch of the government. I mean, I think a lot of people today would uh, you know, definitely take objection to that, seeing how we have these unelected theocrats who are appointed for life and can immediately take away rights from people in the United States just on a moment's notice. So clearly the Supreme Court has lost a lot of its legitimacy. But talk further about the the myth of the idea of checks and balances in in fact what we actually see is much less checks and balances and instead we see open not not actually not open we see uh, quiet collaboration between the so-called independent judiciary that liberals profess their love for and the national security state that is completely unelected and unaccountable
1: Right. I mean, the Constitution, there are a lot of gripes that you could have about the Constitution, and you, you summarized some of them pretty well, that it really was uh, something that was geared towards not lowercase d democracy, but a, you know, a system where property would be protected. And uh, the, the, the better things about the Constitution are the Bill of Rights. I mean, this is where I think you can, you can say that uh, there were exceptional things about America and not be totally off base and ridiculous when you point out the bill of rights, which of course we violate in different times and so on, but those are probably the fundamental aspects of the constitution that are worth uh, honoring in terms of principles, you know, the principle of free speech, free press, free association, freedom of religion, freedom from illegal search and seizure, and so on. But these other aspects of it are, are, are less so, but could potentially provide the safeguard against tyrannical governance, you know, like the judiciary, but the way that it functions in practice is, is not as a safeguard for democracy. It ends up being safeguarding the power of top-down rule. And uh, typically in our society, whenever you hear liberals or mainstream org- entities uh, or commentators talking about an independent part of our regime, that that is usually code for like you know a, a bulwark for top-down power. So for the Supreme Courts. The Supreme Court the judiciary is like that. They're called independent, but they're the most establishment uh, responsive part of the government. The Federal Reserve, the independent uh, central bank, right, independent. But like, are they really independent or do they serve a particular constituency? The Lately, the parliamentarian of the Senate is the newest like, uh, you know, put it like independent thing that we're supposed to accept has some legitimacy. Uh, and is not to be questioned in terms of its arbitrary goodness. Uh, so this is like a, a way to have sort of top-down rule with this idea of independent institutions that are really just establishment-serving institutions. So the judiciary does not check the national security state except under very narrow circumstances. And uh, this, the a lot of the people who served on the Supreme Court were involved in some of the shadier aspects of the national security state like a uh, Rehnquist served in the office of legal counsel uh, for Nixon and was involved in sort of okaying things like a uh, massive mass domestic surveillance of dissidents and so on. This is anti. You you have a guy on the Supreme court who had been party to anti-constitutional uh, law breaking, right? I mean, that's what the N- Nixon administration was involved in that Rehnquist was, was a participant in that. Uh, Scalia was also in the office of legal counsel. He would work with a, uh, dci william colby head of the cia on during the church committee and pike committee hearings uh, working to decide which classified documents congress should actually be allowed to get for a time uh, scalia was the person who approved all covert operations in conjunction with the executive branch uh, justice alito was part of the army signal corps dealing with like top secret communications and then later was part of the uh, office of legal counsel And applied his more or less the unitary executive theory, you know, of Dick Cheney, where the president is essentially allowed to be the law personified. Uh, You know, he, he was looking at legal questions from that angle, and then he gets on the Supreme Court. Justice Roberts was a clerk for Rehnquist, and he also served in the White House Office of General Counsel. He had to respond to a letter sent by Arthur Goldberg, who was a former Supreme Court Justice. Uh, And and Goldberg was complaining about the Reagan's invasion of Granada. And uh, what what Robert said at the time was that the president has uh, inherent authority in international affairs to use the military to defend U.S. interests. So meaning essentially that the president can act more or less as a dictator in terms of his use of the foreign of the military anywhere he wants, because he's the one defending America's national interests. Okay. So, and there have been judges who had a more democratic view of the way society should be organized. Goldberg is a good case. Another case of where this Goldberg, Arthur Goldberg runs into the national security state is he had retired, but he was actually asked by people in the, connected to the Democrats at around the time of Jimmy Carter, um, if he would take over the become the lead counsel for the house select committee on assassinations to investigate the John Kennedy assassination, but Goldberg, uh, he wasn't sure that, that this would be a good thing for him to do. So he calls the director of the CIA Stansfield Turner, Jimmy Carter's director of the CIA. And he says, is the CIA going to cooperate with me in this investigation of JFK? And uh, there's no answer on the line to this guy, former Supreme court justice. Right. And, uh, So he repeats the question. And then Stansfield Turner, head of the CIA, says, well, I thought my silence was the answer. So here we see a Supreme Court justice who is contemplating in a different role taking on the national security state. And he apparently had reason to suspect the CIA would not cooperate with an investigation into the assassination of a president. And he was correct about that. They said, he said, my silence is the answer that that you're going to get. So this this shows you just, uh, you know, that they can be given all sorts of power if they're going to be validating the national security state and affirming its right to do whatever it wants. But when it comes to confronting it, then all of a sudden these guys are are very weak. Granted, he was not on the Supreme Court anymore, but you get the point. It's like these guys have the ability to uh, the national security state can tell former Supreme Court justices how it's going to be. Uh, and this and they don't have much recourse. So this is it's a very weak part of the government. You're not going to get much help in confronting the empire from the Supreme Court unless a critical mass of the oligarchy decides it to be so. And uh, my own sort of general sense is that the Supreme Court ultimately serves at the pleasure of the oligarchy and is responsive to political pressure that you that can't really be seen on in the in the. Uh, prevailing discourse in the newspapers and from politicians
2: right it's it's very much a game of convenience with the judiciary because you know in the bush era like you said you see cheney and and the unitary executive stuff but they rely on even just getting elected in 2000 they rely on the supreme court being the most powerful thing in the land and everyone has to sort of bow down and i think we're seeing the conservatives turn back to that now in the biden era obviously with with uh with roe v wade being overturned there's it's it's just a refrain back to whoever you it's most convenient to have as the most powerful branch and suddenly the courts matter again because they need it to and and it is able to create an illusion of uh you know supreme court having some pedigree left which i think they've sort of wasted away pretty recently even with the uh the more i guess loyal liberals, uh as it were. But you talk in the book about how that illusion rests on five points. One being historical pedigree, like like we've been talking about with the constitution and your the education system really instills this respect for these institutions. Then you have ritual, things like inaugurations. Uh, you have intelligibility, which helps for sort of your your civics nerds out there and your your politics people, usually your more liberal-minded people. And um, then you have mystery, which I think partially includes the thing like when you talk about issues like these with with sort of normal normy political, uh, it, it, you know, voters and and people who just know enough that they hear about something like, oh, this is something the CIA did. And they'll go, oh, well, you know, it's it's they must have our best interests in mind. Oh, it must be it's national security like we, they know more than we do. And so the the mystery there sort of gives a, a cloak of secrecy that also makes them look maybe more important or like they have your best interests in mind just out of your lack of of foresight that they must have and then the fifth one is harmony and that's kind of the big one that we're talking about here with the judiciary is when you look at the way these judges you know you hate to to ascribe the power of who ascends to the highest court to the national security state alone because it should be sort of just a clash creation But it's crazy how many of them have these very direct ties to the intelligence community. So, uh, you know, as we as we look at these public officials, as you write in the book, uh, you say, quote, the public needs to be able to believe that if they would elect the right people, the policies would change. But as Truman said at the time, uh, these intelligence community people look upon elected officials as just temporary occupants of their offices but supposedly we tend to look to other checks on power. If you can't have the judiciary, uh, then you're supposed to find those checks in Congress. So how's that working out for them?
1: Pretty badly. Um, Congress is, what do they, if, if Congress gets into double digit approval ratings, the, the, the champagne corks start popping or something, right? Uh, somewhere. Seven,
0: I mean, 7% seven approval, incredible. Yeah. I mean, but let's not forget, over half of the members of Congress are millionaires.
1: Right. Well, they, they get they get good investment deals, from what I understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's no scrutiny there. But, no
0: insider trading to see. Nothing uh,
1: happening. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a club, of course, and uh, there all the incentives are there for Congress not to want to probe deeply into the national security state's business, uh, and this is for a number of reasons. Um, for one thing, the Congress. Congress people have to be generalists. They have to be somewhat conversant in foreign policy, that something in they have to know economic issues depending on what part of the country they're in. They have to be uh, up on these cultural issues. They have to have the right positions on abortion and gun control and so on. And this can vary depending on where they are. Uh, and they really want to avoid disaster in terms of foreign policy related things. So they want to not be on the wrong side of something like you don't want to vote against a terrorism bill. Uh, right before 9-11, for example. So they, they're, they're, there's incentives to make them just rubber stamp things for the national security state. For Glennon, he points out that there's less civic virtue. So this is where Glennon makes sort of uh, vaguely conservative slash liberal arguments about um, the the problems with the American system being the the, the fault of the American public to some degree that the public is, int- is largely ignorant about foreign policy and that since Congress people are only worried about reelection, they they can't really go beyond what the public wants to do. But there's other ish factors as well. There's the fact that the Trumanites are the ones that write the bills. So national security people often and their lobbying organizations often end up writing the legislation pertaining to national security uh, issues. The Supreme Court has weakened Congress's ability uh, to uh, check national security policy. A 1983 decision invalidated the legislative veto, uh, which dealt with like military plans and weapons sales, uh, so that they couldn't uh, tell the dictate foreign policy to the president just by passing legislation. George H.W. Bush vetoed a bill that would have required uh, the Senate's Intelligence Committee to approve covert operations. Um, the, the government, the, the president, fought lots of wars without any congressional approval, places like Grenada. Panama, Kosovo, Libya, Iraq. You can question whether Congress approved of that, but either way, the the UN definitely didn't approve of that war, so it was illegal. Uh, the Syria covert operation, the dirty war in Syria. The actual, we've actually invaded Syria now and are occupying it. Donald Trump said we're stealing the oil, which is like that's not that's the part you're supposed to like not say out loud, but he actually said it. Just why Trump? as bad as he was in many other ways was the least refreshing for occasionally telling the truth in ways you wouldn't expect. So there's all sorts of uh, foreign policy initiatives that up to and including just knocking out foreign governments, the Congress has no uh, say over. Bill Casey, the director of the CIA said, the business of Congress is to stay out of my business. You know, this is the guy who on the first day uh, or the first few days of his tenure as a Director of the CIA, he sent a memo to I got a guy I think his name was William Lewis French, who was the um, district the um, attorney general under Reagan. And this memo said, uh, "So you've got this rule that the CIA is supposed to tell you whenever any of our assets are trafficking in narcotics. Uh, well, uh, we're not going to do that anymore." That was just the extent of what it what it said. So. This is a good example of how the law just can't check these people. Congress can't do it. Uh, you know, the, even the executive branch, I'm getting ahead of it, but even they don't have that necessarily that much power. So this is, there's a lot, a lot of examples of this, but I mean, Dianne Feinstein, whose is husband is a like national or military industrial complex millionaire. At some point she was getting spied on herself by the CIA when they thought she might be looking into uh, like torture and warrantless wiretapping something along those lines they start spying on her so by and large the, the congress is made up of people who just aren't going to confront the, the the intelligence community and specifically the national security state in general uh one guy named uh Locke johnson an analyst he had described he tried to classify congress in its attitude about intelligence he said there's ostriches like barry goldwater they don't want to know. They bury their head in the sand. They don't want to know. They figure like it's not our business. There's cheerleaders like Diane Feinstein who think that like whatever the, the intelligence community is doing, it's good. And it's for the, the national interest. There's skeptics like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the sort of liberal slash neoconservative guy who, to his credit, after the Cold War said, maybe we should think about abolishing the CIA. I mean, we created this lawless entity in order to fight the evil communist conspiracy. But now that there's not this Soviet threat, do we really need it or what's it even for? Of course he doesn't win that argument. And then there's the guardians of the, you know, the constitution of democracy, people like Frank Church. And they are very few and far between. I don't even think that there's, you couldn't even really put Bernie Sanders in the same category as uh, uh, Frank Church today. So there's those people have pretty much vanished entirely uh, from the American political scene. And when it comes down to it, the Congress is ju- is mostly interested in re-election, confronting the intelligence community or the uh, military industrial complex is not a good way to get re-elected because you're not just messing with those entities, you're messing with all of the people whose meal ticket is connected to the activities of these agencies. So very powerful people. And there's no geographic constituency, no matter where you are as a congressperson, There's really no concentration of people who are very concerned with these sort of foreign policy or intelligence issues. So it's not a winning issue for you to base a campaign on. And uh, there's no interest groups nationally. Or if there are, they're they're very weak. Like Code Pink isn't going to be. APAC might have an influence or Lockheed Martin or Goldman Sachs. You know, these other interest groups that are on the imperial side can have some influence. But there's no huge interest groups with the power to influence electoral politics, which is all driven by money, because there's not huge amounts of money that are made by not being imperialist, okay? Quite the opposite. It's all the imperialism is where the money is at, imperialism and exploitation. And so the, the interest groups backing imperialism and capitalism have all the money in the world. And these other people saying like, maybe we shouldn't slaughter these people over in X country to steal Y resource or whatever. That's just not a perspective that's going to have a lot of uh, power and money behind it because you know, that's more of a moral, humanitarian, human decency kind of a thing. And that's not really what prevails in this political system.
0: <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Aaron, we, we've talked about the justice system. We talked about Congress, the legislative branch. There's, of course, another branch, the executive. And what's interesting to see is that over the years, as, as public trust in institutions like Congress and the justice system has completely declined, we've seen more and more eggs put into the basket of the presidency and more and more power vested in the presidency. We see you know, presidents making a lot of decisions via executive order, especially Trump, although that, that's actually not necessarily new historically. You can go back to Eisenhower. who who passed even more executive orders than any modern president. But the point is that we've seen a a very strong concentration of power in the presidency. You talk in your book about the Obama administration, especially with the drone assassination program, NSA mass surveillance. So how much power does the president have? Because even though we've seen that concentration at the same time, we've also seen a very contradictory... uh, development that seems kind of like an oxymoron where the the power has been further concentrated in the presidency. People have lost all confidence in the justice system and the legislative branch. And yet at the same time, presidents still seem more and more weak. I mean, especially with someone like Biden, who's basically been a lame duck president ever since he entered. And I mean, that's even ignoring the fact that he clearly isn't making decisions because his mental health is very bad. So talk about the role of the presidency and the the concept of the imperial presidency in this theorization of the state.
1: Right. So some critics of the national security state and, uh, you know, American historians, people that should, that are pretty knowledgeable, have made the argument that this is an imperial, that we have an imperial presidency. And Uh, Arthur Schlesinger, who was a former OSS guy and then later worked under President uh, Kennedy, he made this argument in the 70s, I believe is when he writes this this book. But he also it's it's a strange thing because Schlesinger himself was a guy who was when the Kennedy assassination happened, he suspected that national security people were involved. And uh, but he didn't want us, He wanted to be part of the establishment, so he didn't really say much about it at the time. Uh, But he did say to people later on that, yeah, we were at war. The Kennedy administration, we were at war with the national security people. And his wife told um, uh, the producer for Oliver Stone's JFK, uh, this guy named Eric Hamburg. His wife said, "Oh yeah, Arthur's like agnostic, but I know it was like the CIA that, that killed Jack Kennedy, right?" So this is an example of where the guy is like kind of contradicting himself because he sees the U S Schlesinger saw the U S as an empire and the presidency as presiding over this war machine. Even at the same time that he knew that the war, that war machine had like overpowered his own uh, boss, his own president and friend, uh, president Kennedy. But because he wanted to be Mr. Establishment guy and he wanted to continue to play tennis with Richard Helms. uh, He never really went there, but he would occasionally do something interesting. Like he wrote a good review for, John Newman's JFK in Vietnam or he mentioned in in uh, his autobiography or his sorry he mentioned Schlesinger mentioned in his biography of RFK that RFK never believed the Warren Commission uh, about you know Oswald and this was explosive because nobody really knew what RFK thought they all assumed he supported the Warren Commission because he said that in his book so why is he why is he talking about this imperial presidency uh, Chalmers Johnson says this in a in a different way but he doesn't really get into these other these other issues. But the, the point is the presidency and it does have control over the military and over the intelligence agencies and even over, you know, the, the FBI, but they increasingly have uh they, they respond to a higher power, it, it seems, because the presidents cannot really deviate from the course that is uh the preferred course of these with the Trumanite network of the national security state, or what I would say the deep state really, because you want to add in oligarchy, but that's the economic elites, but that's not really what Glennon and the national, the double government idea is getting into. Just pointing out that the president's not very powerful when it comes down to it. He's the president nominally has all kinds of power to do things like launch the Iraq War and so on, but his power is really when he's working in concert with the national security state. If he goes against them, then he runs into all kinds of troubles. Recently, the Washington Post wrote under the under the Truman, or sorry, under the Trump presidency, they wrote that Trump was the first president since Richard Nixon to try to take on the CIA. And you probably remember when uh, he Chuck Schumer went on, like, meet the press, and he said something to the effect of, oh, Mr. President, you shouldn't mess with the CIA. You mess with them, they got six ways from Sunday of getting back at you, right? And it was like, that's very remarkable that this guy's saying it, because that's not what the Constitution says. He's more or less saying that, like, you better do what the CIA says, Obama famously has that quote. I don't know how famous it is, but it was a quote where he said, what the CIA wants, the CIA gets, you know, and people have speculated about his mom's relationship to the CIA and USAID and his business international thing, which I'm not even going to try to unpack here. But the point is that if you it, like Nixon's another one, Nixon fired the, the second, the defense or the, the director of central intelligence and replaced him with a guy. Uh, Schlesinger to try to get dirt on the CIA because he thought the CIA was behind Watergate because the Watergate burglars were all CIA retired, but they were really screwing him with the way that they had a gotten arrested in such a stupid fashion. And then one of them, James McCord was like basically wanting to make sure that the CIA wasn't blamed for the whole thing. And so Nixon tried to take on the CIA. He even went to Helms at one point and said, tell me about the JFK assassination. I want to know who shot Jack, you know, so I can protect you and the dirty tricksters. But I want to know this. And he couldn't ever get those files. He never got these files. And he got kicked out of office before or he had was forced to resign uh, in part. And the military was spying on Nixon. They were spying on Kissinger, just trying to steal his uh, his, um, his papers whenever they could. Like they had this yeoman uh, who was actually taking things from his burn bag and then giving them higher up the chain so that the military could spy on Kissinger. And Nixon was afraid to even do anything about it. He was like, oh, we don't want to make this into a bigger issue. So even when they break the law or withhold information from the president, the president can't tell them what to do. And Nixon, when he ran into these forces and tried to confront them, it led to his resignation. It also led to massive exposure of uh, criminality in the FBI and the CIA because of things that Nixon leaked trying to like expose and fight these entities that were that he perceived as being behind Watergate. That's the only reason we knew anything about what happened in the seventies is because the president Nixon tried to actually take on the security services because he thought they were behind the scandals that were bringing him down, and they actually take a hit. The CIA goes to its lowest point after Watergate because of this, but the goal of getting rid of Nixon still happened, right? For example, and I'm not putting a halo on Nixon at all. Quite the opposite, um, Kennedy, I think, was trying to do things that were more respectable. But even Nixon, with The way he wanted to have a successful presidency uh, and wind down the Vietnam War and have detente with China, maybe even some arms control and some other issues that were too upsetting to the national security state and other important actors in the United States, he gets taken out. So this idea of an imperial presidency is not really true. The president is a subject of the empire uh, and and not so much its main uh, protagonist.
0: So, Aaron, we've talked about the three different exe- the three different branches in the US, judicial, legislative, executive. We talked about academic theorization of where power lies, how the structure of the US state operates. How do people in academia, different scholars explain US foreign policy then? Because you've talked about many of the limits, you've talked about some of the different arguments how do they explain the fact that US foreign policy stays absolutely consistent regardless of who's president when they deny the fact that these forces in the national security state are more powerful than the elected officials?
1: Yeah, they, they're, they're not typically so candid about this and there's more diversity than I can possibly among political scientists than I can really capture in the book. But by and large, you can say that there is a denial of the sort of top down nature of U S foreign policy and of U S imperialism and even discussing imperialism or U S hegemony is almost getting into like too it's almost too, too uh, dicey, too radioactive. It's a rare thing for them to speak candidly about the U S as an empire that has to operate according to logics of all other empires, you know, which is more or less uh, the process by which economic elites of one nation, you know, dominate another nation. Right. That's a short answer for what imperialism is. This is not something political science uh, gets into. It's like it's considered almost gauche to like talk about these things. But the, the in terms of understanding foreign policy, and I'm not going to go into great detail here mercifully, I think, for the audience. But there's two main approaches to the explanations about US foreign policy. There's the rational actor model, uh, which more or less posits that the American state should be looked at as a rational actor who makes choices based on a certain rationale. And there's different versions of this, whether there's like perfect information for this rational actor to base its decisions upon or not. Uh, and the other one is uh, the, go- the governmental politics model. And that one sees uh, decisions as being based on bargaining games, Uh, between certain interests and actors. And the problem with this is that there's really so many different variables that it's kind of impossible to say what variable or what actor is ever really responsible for any given decision. So this is why Glennon himself uses a slightly different one, the organizational behavior model. And he adapts that to the idea of a network instead of just an organization for a number of reasons. The result is that Glennon's idea of double government, which is kind of a version of the dual state, is uh, is better than conventional political science, uh, even as it has some serious omissions.
2: I think Glennon's approach, from what you've said, is is demonstrably better than a lot of the, the liberal mainstream, because it at least doesn't try to psychologize everything and looks to the way that um, maybe democracy or or It looks to the way that maybe we're not as much of a democracy as we'd like to believe um, or that maybe certain people tell us. But at the same time, if you get into the, the minutia of what he's saying, he's looking at institutional structure and then he's essentially blaming the inertia of our system on the way that that structure is set up. And so he's talking about the way that secrecy and compartmentalization and just on a very basic level institutional incentives moving up through through an institution that you're a part of. Even C. Wright Mills talks about this of essentially that the people at the top, the elites, the, the people running the show are going to look to the younger people who match their mindset. And so there is every incentive on a personal level to match the current thinking and to not innovate and to not change too much. And as we've seen, that might not be the case because at the time that, that C. Wright Mills was writing, um, there didn't need to be that much innovation, but Glennon isn't able to bring certain things in for that exact reason. And as you write in the book, uh, most importantly, the emissions and oversights in Glennon's theory are central to the theory of the tripartite state theory. There are certain questions that he basically places outside the scope of his study, including what are the unchanging objectives of us foreign policy. And so what he falls prey to, just like a lot of the mainstream is trying to place are foreign policy institutions in a vacuum and not look at the ways that just saying there's inertia doesn't look at well where did we start out and why did we start out at that point and why has there always been this sort of specific teleological bent to the way that the policies play out that isn't just some sort of stroke of luck that we just so happen to be on these rails and we just moved in that direction because it Uh, As you point out, there are these more structural forces that are playing a role. So how does uh, the field of foreign policy analysis then to kind of close us out today, uh, how does that field come in here? And maybe how do certain people like your tripartite state theory and C. Wright Mills, uh, how, how are you able to sort of remedy some of those problems of looking at it in a vacuum?
1: Well, foreign policy analysis is, as I understand it, relatively new subdiscipline of of political science, and they attempt to look at foreign policy. I think they're responding to a pretty obvious deficiency of the discipline as a whole in terms of dealing with foreign policy. And so they apply, with varying degrees of success and insight, they apply four approaches to uh, the U.S. foreign policy questions. Uh, one of them is like based on the individual decision maker, and that might be geared more around psychology. So I think, for example, the psychological biographies of like Woodrow Wilson uh, trying to explain why the League of Nations failure had something to do with the way his dad treated him. OK, that's one psychological aspect of it. I don't think these are that useful. Uh, the psychology of elites or especially when you're talking about American presidents. It's interesting to note that like the two presidents who were on the more progressive side were both like wealthy elites who kind of had some, uh, you know, standing within the establishment, FDR and JFK, and uh, that they were able to act sort of independently and that most presidents typically are either part of the right as it was already, like the Bush family or Reagan's Reagan, or they are um, people who can rise from obscurity and thus are obviously co-opted because you wouldn't rise from obscurity if you weren't co-optable. So Truman, LBJ, uh, Nixon, Clinton, Jimmy Carter, they fit this kind of mold of, of people who rise, whose psychology, to the extent that it's important, is important because they ro- uh, they rose from humble backgrounds, which really meant that they had to be co-optable to people in power to rise. So that, that, to me, is about the extent to which psychology is really interesting in this kind of a context of big historical questions. Uh, The other approach is like group decision-making that sort of deals with like, you know, social psychology in some ways, maybe Uh, there's culture and identity is one way that people look at it. Most famously, um, Sam Huntington talking about clashes, civilizations, uh, really trying to put cultural, uh, a cultural spin on why foreign policy plays out the way that it does. This has this is useful for the establishment. And Huntington was an establishment guy, first and foremost. And this kind of allows you to uh, really ponder these differences that are supposedly so deep seated uh, between peoples and nations. So you might be able to say that, uh, you know, China has this or that bent or the Russians. I mean, we see this now and weird play out in weird ways with like Keith Olbermann talking about how he's ashamed of his Russian genes or something. I don't, I don't even know. But these are just kind of ways to obscure foreign policy. Uh, and then there's also so and 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 cultural, cultural issues, identity issues. The interesting sort of rejoinder to this is C. Wright Mills, who we're going to talk about in the next episode, but he wrote about the cultural apparatus. And he was more or less pointing out that he wanted to do a whole study on this, which the Ford Foundation wouldn't fund as a follow-up to the power elite. But he wanted to write about how it, the culture reproduces ideas or doesn't allow ideas to become powerful and this is a, a function of the power in society and so really the people that are producing academic output or cultural output artistic output they all have to have patrons they all have to have people with money they all have to be connected to established political institutions because everybody has to eat everybody has to pay rent and so on and so he really wanted to explore the way that this is this plays out in the united states and how you have this kind of top-down domination of culture not just you know, politics and the economy, but he was never able to do that. But I think that ultimately these things like culture and identity are heavily uh, influenced by, like everything else, are influenced by money and power in society. Now, the other version, uh, the other uh, approach in, in foreign policy analysis is like a domestic politics approach, which does try to look at how domestic political actors influence foreign policy, and this is better but uh, in some ways, but they're still limited. And I I think my summary here at the end was pretty um, accurate about it, in that FPA is an important subdiscipline with the worthy aim of illuminating the means and ends of the human decision-makers who formulate and execute foreign policy. In this way, its practitioners are following C. Wright-Mills directive that a master task of intellectuals is to investigate the causes of war and among them to locate the decisions and defaults of elite circles. So these other approaches, they, uh, they could produce useful scholarship. But unfortunately, I'll pick up again here, mainstream foreign policy analysis has a considerable aversion to materialism and elite theory. For this study, my book, therefore, mainstream foreign policy analysis scholarship is only as useful as the extent to which US foreign policy is neither elitist nor driven by material considerations. But since US foreign policy elites demonstrably achieve their elite status through organizations dominated by the overworld of private wealth. U.S. foreign policy is extremely elitist and driven by material considerations. And uh, well, I, of course, stand by that. Uh, Still, I haven't changed my mind on that. I think that's about about right.
0: Yeah, I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this part on. I mean, there's no question whatsoever in my mind. And I think Anyone who considers himself a serious scholar cannot overlook the fact that U.S. foreign policy is created by wealthy corporate elites on behalf of wealthy corporate elites. Anyone who claims otherwise is either hopelessly naive or has drunk the Kool-Aid and is part of that very same, very same system. Now, as you point out in your book, there are a few rare exceptions to these academics who refuse to see what's right in front of them. One of the most honorable exceptions is C. Wright Mills. And in the next part of this series, we're going to be talking about chapter four of your book, which is about C. Wright Mills and the American power elite. I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a great episode. But with that, I think we're just going to wrap up this part. It was a very good um, overview. In just an hour, I think we did a great job of doing an overview of theories of the state, the the faults the flaws and limitations of mainstream academic theorization of the state and your corrective. And Aaron, I'll I'll give you the final word to wrap up here.
1: Well, I think that my closing there about the uh, elitist and materialist considerations of the foreign policy establishment is more or less what I would want to say, but I would just point out the questions that Glennon does not answer. And I would maybe end on some questions, which are, what are the unchanging Uh, objectives of U.S. foreign policy, when, how, and by whom were they formulated, how unchanging have they been, and what accounts for the variation that does exist, what are the big assumptions of the U.S. political class, how did these assumptions arise, what social forces gave rise to the creation of the national security state, and how did these forces uh, influence its development thereafter, Uh, I think that these are what we want to look at, and we want to, above all, look at power and keep our eye on power and who has power. And who doesn't?
0: Very well said, Aaron. Very well said. Those are great questions to end on. And I think those are questions that we're going to be exploring and answering throughout the series, throughout the Empire and the Deep State series that you are listening to or watching. This is a joint production of American Exception and Multipolarista. If you want to support this show and get early access to all of these episodes, we still have a lot more coming in the series. You can go to patreon.com americanexception, and you can also go to patreon.com multipolarista. You'll get early access to these episodes. I myself am looking forward to continuing this series. I'm Ben Norton. I'm joined by Aaron Good, the author of American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, and we're joined by the producer, Seamus McGinnis. Thanks, guys. That was another great episode.